New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we'll be looking at what is required to avoid being co-opted by tyrants in the light of biblical stories and text. I'm not talking about being passive in the context of all that's screaming at us for social justice and dignity and equality for all. You may be surprised to know that the Bible represents generations of faith communities who resisted tyranny in impossible circumstances and when the future looked bleak. Our guest today offers a look at Scripture with new eyes to help us see and discern what the biblical stories have to say about the overall arc of Scripture as a call to resist tyranny. Join us as we look at the bold agendas that faith communities are proposing with our guest, the Reverend Jennifer Butler. Jennifer Butler is an ordained Presbyterian minister with her Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. She is the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and former chair of the White House Council of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. She's a staunch advocate for women's rights and human rights and is passionate about the need to counter religious extremism. She served in the Peace Corps from 1989 to 1991 in a Mayan village in Belize, Central America, where she discovered she had a talent as a community organizer. She's the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. Join us for the next hour as we explore a practical map to reclaim Scripture to heal a broken world with our guest, the Reverend Jennifer Butler. I'm speaking with Reverend Butler at her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It is wonderful to be here. Well, it's grand to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start off just right off the bat. Does one need to be a believer in order to gain some wisdom from the Bible? I don't think that you do. It's a great question. Um, I personally learn a lot from 
all different faiths and from secular humanists and from poetry. I think because all of our faith traditions and our moral sort of traditions speak to some of the same truths that are out there. And so I think for any reader, uh, my book is illuminating um, because it touches on those unifying truths that are at the heart of so many of our faith and moral philosophical traditions. Exactly, universal truths. Um, you know, and I remember um, reading about at one point you were contemplating leaving Christianity or leaving the church. Uh, can you describe what happened and what brought you back in? Yes. So many of us, I think, have at one time or another been harmed by our faith traditions, and we've seen within them hypocrisy. And that's so painful because of what they purport to be. You know, I think it's more painful when a religious system or religious belief lets us down or a religious leader, uh, more so than when, say, a political leader does that, right? Because we're not expecting it. And for me, I had experienced a lot of sexism in the church and watched my church sort of tear each other apart over wanting to exclude LGBTQ people from ordination. And so I felt very disillusioned. And what turned me around, I was working in the international women's movement and I was representing the Presbyterian Church at the UN. And we were teaming up with women of all faiths to counter religious attacks on human rights. And one day we were holding an event across from the UN and we were in the chapel to the United Nations. And um, we had, we had uh, as we began that event, um, we cleared the communion table actually so that um, the Muslim women participants who were going to speak about religious um, extremism could um, sit together. And it, for me, that became a symbol of communion, like what better way to, to picture communion than people coming together to talk about justice. And in the middle of the presentation, the Saudi Arabian delegation came into the room to intimidate these Muslim women. And everybody in the audience stood up to applaud them so that they would have the courage to continue. And when they stood up, not only did that encourage the participants, it, it bodily blocked the guards from entering the room. They were able to continue to speak their truth. And as I watched that, I felt inspired to step forward and, and just as they were doing to claim my faith and to not let anyone steal it from me. And I even sort of had to challenge myself if these women facing all they were up against could stand up and reclaim their faith tradition, then I sure as hell could too. So that's when I decided to be ordained. Amazing. That that must have been an amazing moment to watch them just spontaneously. The and, and it was all women I I that just kind of it was. surrounded and protected these women to speak their truth. I, I'm just like, I love this story. And, and the, the men were just blocked from having <laughs> to, to disrupt. Um, that's wonderful. They were so creative, you know, and it reminds me of how often in scripture we see women doing creative, almost humorous things to counter tyrants. Exactly, exactly. We'll get into that too. Um, starting with, uh, in the beginning of, of the book, you talk about something called the Sinai 
covenant. Yes. And that I think is so important and with such a departure from the creation stories that were going on at the time. So we're talking about Moses and leaving Egypt and, and all of this part of the Bible. So uh, tell us about the Sinai Covenant. Yeah. Well, we often think of, we know about the Ten Commandments, whatever tradition you come from, they've been popularized in movies. And um, so a lot of folks know the story of the Ten Commandments. And often when we hear about the Ten Commandments, we think, oh, this is a set of do's and don'ts and sort of pietistic laws. And if you implement them, you'll be okay. If you don't, then God's going to hit you over the head and punish you. (laughs) Um, The Sinai Covenant was actually a radical way of structuring society in its time. And the the first commandment, some people see that as being, um, God starts out and says, now remember when God gives the 10 commandments, God has just freed the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And God, the first thing God says is, remember, I am the God who led you out of Egypt. I am the God who frees slaves, basically. And that really is the foundation of not just the Ten Commandments, but the four books of law in the Hebrew scripture. It's the foundation of everything, and it's one of the most often repeated scripture verses. Um, Every time God issues any sort of moral precept, it's rooted in that truth, that God is the God who liberates, who frees slaves. And then all of the law can be divided into Um, loving God and love neighbor. And those two are inextricably intertwined. And so what God is saying is, I'm going to show you how to live together in a way that is the opposite of tyranny. I'm going to teach you how to love your neighbor. I'm going to teach you how to welcome the stranger. I am going to teach you how to honor the Sabbath. They say a lot of um, rabbis have taught me that the Sabbath was the first labor law. The idea that you didn't have to work seven days a week. Um, and that we should honor human dignity through rest. And I, I don't think that there's any other written scripture that that has that first and foremost, like a day of rest. That that seems kind of unique. I, I may be wrong about this, but unique in the Bible, and especially the I Old Testament. I think it is. I think that is, and it, it's... Um, when we think about that, too, in terms of the culture we live in today with uh, this sort of hyper-capitalism that we experience, we're taught to measure one another by how hard we work. And we brag about how hard we work and how exhausted we are. And yet we know that that's what makes us neurotic. It makes us anxious. It separates us from those who love us because we don't spend time nurturing our relationships. It makes us make bad decisions because we're constantly fatigued and we can't get any perspective. Um, and so when you, you think of you know, Sabbath in that way, rather than like, did you go to church? You didn't go to church. Well, you're a bad Christian. <laughs> you didn't go to synagogue. You're a bad Jew. No, I think God was giving us a gift, a chance to rest, to get perspective, um, to really honor our relationships with one another and not to treat people as laborers, as workers, as producers, or as consumers. So often, I want to shake my fist when I hear the economic reports, because I am labeled a consumer, not a child of God, but a consumer. (laughs) And when you really think about, about that, you know, consume, consume, work, work, is that all we are? And we see the effects of that, I think, in our culture as 
more and more people are working themselves to death or in bad health or not given the benefits that they need. We see the ramifications when we start to exploit human labor. And that's exactly what God was telling us. We don't want to create a society where we enslave and exploit people. We want a society where there's a day of rest. And I, I know we're we're right in the midst. We're doing this interview in the um, middle of the fall of 2020. We're right in the midst still of the worldwide pandemic. And, and here in the U.S., where many of us are quarantined ourselves and we're sheltering in place. And uh, I know this is a tremendous hardship for many, many, many people in the U.S. This is tremendously hard and difficult and there, there are negative effects. But there's also a little bit of benefit. There's this slowing down of culture. Do, do you have anything to say about that? There definitely is, and a lot of people have spoken to that, that um, it's causing us to, to focus more on what's important, um, to change our routines. You know, I know for me personally, it's been a time of spending more time outdoors with some of the simpler pleasures in life. Um, I think that's some of the friction for some of us as we slow things down. We're noticing things in our lives, perhaps, that need attention. And that can be rattling and anxiety producing. Um, And then I I think this is a time to um, of revelation. We'll talk. I want to hear more about the time of revelation. We're uh, I'm here with Reverend Jennifer Butler, and she is the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jennifer Butler, and she is the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, faithinpubliclife.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And we were just talking about being... um, Jennifer, in uh, the pandemic and how it slows us down a bit, and you you just started to say, but there's a revelation that might be coming to us during this time. I think it is. You know, so as we slow down, I think people are noticing things about their lives that they want to change, and maybe some things they'll carry with them even when the pandemic is gone. But the other 
bit of revelation that comes to us, I think, is a pulling back the veil on all that's broken in our country and all that we need and, and actually want to fix. We see, for example, the racial disparities and how the pandemic is impacting some communities more than others. And we see the brokenness of our healthcare system that often discriminates against low wage workers and people of low wealth in communities of color in particular. And so, you know, the last book of the Bible is Revelation and it's often been misinterpreted as a prediction of the future, some sort of horror movie that unfolds. And what it's really about is a pulling back of the veil of what's happening in the Roman Empire at that time. You know, John of Patmos has been exiled. He's sitting in prison on the small island. He's been isolated from his people. And he has a dream that shows him the powers and principalities that are at work in the world and how his people need to resist the brutality of the Roman Empire. So I write about this in the book. And I think that's what we're experiencing today is we're seeing how brutal our economic system is. And we're also seeing how we tend to react to suffering um, with self-protection. When if we could create the kind of healthcare system that we need, we actually could have quickly handled this pandemic to protect the vulnerable and then more quickly gotten everybody back to work and back to sort of a normal routine. We could have protected everybody if we prioritized the weak and the vulnerable as our Bible tells us to do. And I'm thinking going back to uh, Moses and and the Sinai covenant and um, God the, the God saying, um, "Hey, slavery! I'm freeing you from slavery." Or the, this this is the direction you can go to be freed from slavery. And and you mention uh, economic poverty and stuff. And 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 I know that that you mentioned in the book. Um, there's an economic apartheid going on in this country right now. Um, can, can you speak to that? There is. Yeah, our um, wealth inequality is at an all-time high, um, levels not seen since just before the Great Depression. And what that's doing is creating a lot of social unrest and a lot of suffering and a lot of death. And it's easy to fix. You know, we, we have the greatest wealth of any nation in the world and probably any nation the world has ever seen, we have the power actually to level the playing field and to ensure that everyone has enough to thrive on. And yet we have the highest maternal mortality rate in the industrialized world and the highest child uh, death rate, uh, infant mortality rate in the world. Um, And so how is it that the world's superpower you know, can't even take care of its women and children. Um, and so we need, to, we need to look at that. And so I think this time of, of pandemic should be a time when we really scrutinize ourselves and think about the kind of society we could build. Because ultimately, what scripture and all of our faith traditions teach us is that tyranny ultimately comes for all of us. It harms all of us. Mm. Um, and we see that in the pandemic. We see that in the decision not to jump on the pandemic right away, to instead try to hide the potential impact of it. And this has happened many times throughout our history. Instead, we could have um, jumped right in and all of us would more more quickly be back to our normal routines 
and back uh, into running our economy. You know, Jennifer, I know that, and I so appreciate the idea, and I never saw this in print before you say, um, there are no white people in the Bible. <laughs> it's just like, oh, oh, right, right. The Bible is written from a, a time in the Middle East, and that's not where the white culture has come from. You write about the internalized racism of white people. And I just want to read something that that you wrote because I, I just thought it was so powerful in how you were couching this. You say, as a white woman, I do not live in fear that my son will be shot by police or vigilantes on days for wearing a hoodie or for jogging through a neighborhood. Trapped in privilege that our skin color, that our, meaning white people, our skin color grants us, white people do not know about or accept black realities caused by racism. White people are spiritually blind and atrophied if we fail to hear George Floyd crying, I can't breathe, and then follow these crises upstream to find what caused them. I mean, I, I think that's well said that as we go through, we'll say, I'm not racist. You know, I mean, I didn't didn't cause the, the Cherokees to have to leave their homes in the South and go on the Trail of Tears or I've never owned slaves and so forth and so on. But just being um, living in a privilege, as many white people have, um, there is something internalized, and I speak to that, please, Jennifer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I love Ibram Kindi, who is a leading expert on racism, and what he says is that racist ideas have been raining down on our heads all of our lives. And so, um, and he includes white and, and black people in that, you know, that we, we've been... Um, the air we breathe has been racist. And I continue to learn that throughout my life. I've been a social justice advocate for a long time. I've studied anti-racism for a long time. And yet um, every week I have to confront attitudes and perceptions or moods of behavior, ways of coming across patterns that I get in that are a product of white supremacy. Or assumptions. Assumptions, assumptions. made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, as a white leader, for example, one of the things I grapple with the most is a sort of white savior complex. I want to be the first, you know, into battle and I want to, you know, help. Um, and yet one of the things I'm being told to do and I'm learning to do is I work with a team of women of color. And as we ally ourselves with black led organizations is really to follow the lead of women of color. And often what they tell me is, Jen, wait stand back. We don't need you yet. We'll let you know when you're needed. And my first response to that is, but, but, but I have to help, you know, it is so hard to stand back and follow um, their lead, but they, there's a lot they know about what to do, having experienced this firsthand, and I need to listen to their wisdom and to their experience. All right. Now, I want to go back then, uh, because this going back to the beginning of the book, um, where you talk about how the women 
the women who um, played a role in resistance strategy. These are like I'm talking about Miriam and the daughter of Pharaoh. These women early on in the Bible in Exodus, here they are defying the tyrants. So tell us about that story. (laughs) You and I are just smiling ear to ear as you introduced this topic. And um, it's one of the things that excited me most as I delved back into scripture for writing this book. I encourage every reader to go and read the first chapter of Exodus, because here I grew up in the Bible Belt. I went to church three times a week. Amazingly, I never heard about the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, until I got much older. Now, if I were Jewish and if I were African-American, I bet I would have known about them. But anyway, when you read the first chapter, it is so clear that all you hear about are these women heroes. First, the Hebrew midwives, and they used humor and wit to outwit this genocidal pharaoh. They say, Pharaoh, you know, we tried to comply with your order to kill the children as soon as they're born. But these Hebrew midwives are so robust. They just push these kids, these children out before we can even get there. You know, so you find yourself kind of chuckling. Um, but but their bravery in confronting him and, and disobeying his orders is quite you know striking. Then you see Miriam and Moses' mom um, build a, a raft for Moses to float him down the river. And he is, of course, collected by the daughter of Pharaoh. To me, this spoke of an intersectional coalition of women across race, across class, across power, that were conspiring to thwart Pharaoh's plans. And I likened it to what's happening today. You know, we have children being found in the rivers of the Rio Grande and in our borders, and women are teaming up, um, especially, you know, in the past couple of years, to to really uh, being solidarity with migrant families whose families are being separated from them from their arms at the border. Exactly. It's just a wonderful story, teaching story about an actual history. I'm assuming that this actually happened in that time. You know, I think it echoes something of what happened. And I imagine not only was there Shipra and Pua, all the midwives were collaborating, all the families were collaborating. A lot of the elite women, they were trying to undermine Pharaoh. And then it's not until chapter two of Exodus that God is introduced into the picture and God walks onto the set and says, I am the God who hears the groans and acts. And God moves into history following the lead of that intersectional coalition of women. So God is following the women. Oh, I love it. I, love I sort it. of like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Uh, one of, you know, one of my most favorite books, I'm not sure if you are familiar with it, a book by Charlotte Gordon. It's called The Woman Who Named God. And oh, it's just fabulous. And she she writes about Hagar from the viewpoint of Sarah and Hagar, uh, who Sarah, who was a childless for so long, Abraham's first wife, and Hagar, the slave wife, and and it was written on the, from their viewpoint rather than from Abraham's, and it's just fascinating. And I learned oh so gosh. much about 
uh, this mother of Islam, Hagar. Um, I mean, I never even thought about uh, Islam as as being founded by a woman. I mean, wow. isn't that amazing? I'm going to get that book. Oh, the theologian I love on this has been Dolores Williams, an African American woman who writes the story as well of Hagar. Um, and I think that's one of those stories. At least as a white Christian, I wasn't taught growing exactly. up. Exactly, exactly. And yet, it's a critical story. Exactly. I'm here with Reverend Jennifer Butler, and she is the author of "Who Stole My Bible." I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Reverend Jennifer Butler, and she is the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. And Jennifer, um, you you mentioned in the book the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. And um, this is where people, well, you might describe that museum, and I'd love for you to share with us why some Christians feel this this museum is so important. Yeah. Yeah, about 40% of Christians still believe that the earth was created in seven days. And they believe that, you know, it was created just as it is described in the first chapter of Genesis. And so there's um, a wealthy family established a museum to sort of prove that and to lift up that view of Genesis, the creation story, of uh, the Christian faith, and and they really take that creation story to be science, and it it absolutely has to hold. And so they, you know, they reject the idea of evolution and all the science of dinosaurs, etc. And um, you know, I, I'd say that's that's actually um, quite a loss for them um, to sort of see scripture in that way, because I think that the story was really intended to uh, convey a moral worldview that was completely radical for its time. In the time of the ancient Near East, when that story arose, it was believed that the gods created the earth out of their defeated uh, gods that they warred against, out of of the body, body and blood and bones of defeated gods, and that human beings were created to be the slaves of gods. And so what's so amazing about the creation story is that God says over and over again, you know, God creates and says, it is good. It is good. Everything God creates is good. And it's not built out of warring gods and destroyed bodies and and blood and this kind of gore. Um, And human beings are, are actually created in God's image. In God's image, they're created and they're pronounced very good. So the creation story is actually undoing the creation myths of the time that justified tyranny and justified slavery. And instead, they had this idea that human beings are created in God's image and therefore are precious and to be treated, created, um, and to be treated as such. 
So that's the cornerstone for resisting tyranny. You mentioned how very many, I mean, an enormous millions of people here in the U.S. believe in the literal idea that seven 24-hour period of time, seven of them, is people would roam around with dinosaurs at some point. And that brings up for me, okay, all right, so if that's true, and um, now I don't believe that, you don't believe that, but uh, if that's true for so many people, what are the principles um, in which we might be able to have a civil conversation mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with people who are believing this. And, and I know in your book, you point out the work of Jim Henderson and Jim Hancock. And um, they give us uh, three ways for crossing this divide in a conversation. Do you recall their, their principles? I don't have the list in front of me. Why don't you read them? Okay, I, I, I'll help you with that since you're on the road right now. Um, one is be unusually interested in others. So any mm. comment on the first principle? Yeah, I think it's important when dialoguing with people who have a different opinion than we do to really listen to where they're coming from to actively listen and to mirror that and repeat that back to them. Because I think what we often find is um, what's really at stake for folks is that they feel like their sacred texts are also being taken from them. They're being taken from them by a scientific worldview. And so in some ways we all have that in common. We all feel the text is really precious and that it conveys something important, something of meaning to us. And if we can connect over that basic point, even though we don't uh, agree on the particulars, then we have the basis of a conversation. Exactly, exactly. The second one, and I think this is important, I will stay in the room with the difference. I mean, hanging in there. So so what's your comment (laughs) on that? It's a real spiritual practice to step back and ask oneself, why do I feel so anxious? at the fact that they disagree with me. Now, sometimes we feel anxious because we feel like there are some real implications uh, for the differences, and there are, you know? Um, But at the same time, um, the ability to stay together in relationship is very transformative. Um, And it teaches us a lot about love. And if we can get that kind of synergy going in a conversation, then we can bring that into the world. We can learn to at least respect each other. And that's the basis for understanding and moving forward together. And I know if, if we walk away from the table, then, uh, you know, it, because we disagree and we listen to their viewpoint and we just shrug our shoulders and turn our back and walk away, then um, have we really accomplished anything? And um, that leads to the third one, which is I will stop comparing my best with your worst, and this replaces pretentious uh, certainty with, um, with modest exploration. There needs to be humility, I think, you know, and the, the openness that we can learn from one another. And maybe that's the most challenging some thing sometimes about disagreeing with people is 
when I, when I have a debate or a discussion with somebody, I realize how much I don't know, you know, all the points that I want to make, but I I really don't know the answers or have the facts in front of me. (laughs) That's very humbling. And so that's, that again, I think is the basis of um, being able to move forward together as if, if both sides can learn to be humble with each other. There are many um, kings in the Bible, <laughs> and and I know in your book, you just you point out like um, the, rather than really being revered, these many kings are actually examples of tremendous uh, corruption. I mean, I'm thinking going back to Saul, who was got, was quite mad, and, and then um, David, who killed a man to, to, because he coveted his wife, and then Solomon, who just amassed fortunes, and then Solomon, uh, his son Samuel, was corrupt. So, any comments on on these kings and these kingdoms that there's maybe another way of looking at that? There is. You know, it's it's funny because I think um, Christians in particular have tended to do this. We try to turn everyone in the Bible into a hero. They're in the Bible, therefore they must be a hero. God wouldn't have, you know, picked them to be leaders. The, case, the actuality is that these are stories of people who grappled with God, who struggled with God, who struggled to live up to what God wanted them to do. And therefore, the stories were more, are more rich and more instructive for us. Who wants to listen to a story or watch a movie that has no plot tension in it? You know? So the first thing I think to do is just to realize these are the stories of people who didn't quite measure up and who wrestled. And that's how we learn who God is and um, about God's grace. Um, and, and what I learned was um, my gut instinct uh, that I had as a child when looking at King Solomon was right. King Solomon did not seem to fit into my picture Bible. Everything else was full of humility and uh, more down to earth. And then you have this um, sort of fairy tale Princess Solomon who you know, said things like, life is meaningless, all is meaningless, you know, like even the sort of wisdom literature to me didn't sort of match up with the prophetic uh, literature, which was more impassioned. And what Solomon wrote about was very detached, kind of like reminded me of actually um, a a sort of spoiled rich child that lived down the street that was always in despair because he never had enough. And the more he got, the more he wanted. That was Solomon. And if you look closely and read the, the book of Samuel, you learn that there's a real strong critique of Solomon and of the Israelites' decision to have a king. Uh, God wanted them to be a priesthood and a light to other nations and wanted everybody to step up and sort of live out the Ten Commandments and the the law. Uh, But instead, at some point, they get anxious. The Philistines are on the move and they, in fear, ask, really demand of God, let's give us a king, give us a king. And God finally relents and says, but warn them, a king will turn around and be a tyrant, just like Pharaoh in Egypt. It's actually in the scripture. It's right there in the scripture, in the book of Samuel. And then Solomon later, many chapters later, becomes the fulfillment of that. That warning is repeated and Solomon is the exact replica of everything God warned against. Um, and then the nation of Israel breaks down into civil war um, over the, the generations. Then Babylon invades. 
And it's the prophets that call the nation back to this vision God had of there being a priesthood and living in justice and in equality. And I'm thinking when you when you talk about uh, living in priesthood, it was also part of the new covenant is that everyone is a priest, so to speak, that, that we don't have to go to some other authority, but we're there's an authority within ourselves. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's better. That's a good clarification because it was that everybody, in a sense, was a priest and everybody had a role in upholding the Sinai covenant. And I liken that today to what we're struggling with, um, that we seem to want to put... Um, all of our power in the pot hands of another person. Like we seem to be choosing a king by, by making gods of people around us who are very powerful. And actually around the world, autocracy is on the rise. I mean, I always thought I was taught in school that, you know, the world was evolving toward democracy and American democracy was always improving and getting better. And one of the things I say in the book is, um, it's morally incumbent upon us all, including myself, to get to know our history better. Because once we do that, we realize how flawed our democracy has been and what we need to do to try to fix it. You know, I, I, I want to mention something here because it just struck me. I, I was watching um, our present President Trump. Um, and it, there was something that happened that just, and I don't think the news has really reported it in the context of what we're talking about here. And he uh, was re- just just lambasting this reporter who was working for Reuters, who asked him a very polite question and then with a follow-up question. And the president just just started screaming at him, don't talk to me that way. You're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me. I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. Mm-hmm. And for me, Jennifer, that was like, oh, we don't have, well, maybe that's the way we treat kings. But since we don't have a king in the United mm-hmm. States uh, and we're all citizens, including the president and when we're being polite, uh, what? It just struck me, uh, and I'd like to, to hear your reaction to that in just one moment, but I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the author of Who Stole My Bible? I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Reverend Jennifer Butler, and she's the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. And Jennifer, I was just uh, talking about, um, here we are in the United States in a democracy, and we we have resisted kings here. That was like, hey, we don't want King George anymore. We, we want a president. And um, this reminds me of the, the, you really talk about how in the Bible um, to degenderize things, so to speak. And we talk often the kingdom of God. And um, you bring up something called the kingdom of God. So can you speak about just taking that G out of kingdom and kingdom and what, what that meant, means? Yeah, that's a concept that uh, comes from Ada Maria Asazi Diaz, um, who's a theologian. And she came up with this idea of kingdom, um, ken being, of course, um, uh, neighbor or kinship. Um, and so we're to create um, an egalitarian community where everyone is treated as uh, created in God's image. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's uh, a way of not using the language that we're trying to resist. And that's always one of the tricky things, I think, when we're headed into a new vision of how to live together is how not to use the very language we're trying to resist. And so uh, Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of God, which is a beautiful concept, but we could um, translate that using Ada Maria Sazidia's observation as kinship or as a kingdom of God rather than kingdom of God or the reign of God, uh, the presence of God in our midst because of the way we're living together and harmony and love of neighbor. So that's the concept that she brought forward to us. And I think it's really in keeping with what Jesus was teaching us. One of the um, chapters in your book is you call it America Today, How Truth Dies. And I, I thought that this was a really Im, important chapter. And, you know, Jennifer, it reminds me, and I'll just say this story really, really briefly. It reminds me mm-hmm. of a report that I gave one time in when I was in college. And it was about the Po River in northern Italy, uh, about the flooding and about the rains that came down. And what they did, there was a dam upstream on this river. And um, they were worried because there was so much, the, the earth was getting so saturated with um, rain. They, they drove some uh, divining rods into the hills next to the dam to just make sure that nothing was going on with these um, hills and any shifts going on with the, these hills next to the dam. And it turned out that they had not run their rods deep enough mm. and the slippage was so great that that when it when these hills did slip into the uh, waters behind the dam it caused flash floods uh, downstream and many many people died because it mm. was so sudden and um, and even the cows, on the hillside, started leaving the hillside, and they didn't even notice. They didn't take that as a warning. And I, I just somehow America today, how truth dies. 
there is somehow there's an analogy for me here that are we sinking our truth rods deeply enough? Uh, yeah, that is really good. And the Bible writes a lot about truth. You know, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, the Gospel of John in particular does. And I think there's that scene where Pontius Pilate has an opportunity to let Jesus go. And he cynically looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? And as a child, I used to always say, no, no, wait, you know, you know, you can tell he's a nice guy, you know? <laughs> I often look back to when I was a child, I could like see things more clearly, right? Um, but what Pilate is saying there, I say in my book, is that the emperor defines the truth. Whoever's got the power defines what truth is. And to maintain power, those in power will try to define the truth. And I begin that chapter also talking about how so many of us were warned about by George Orwell in the book 1984 about the stranglehold that communism had on truth and the way they locked down the media and controlled the media. Today, we have a different version of that, and it's happening through the internet and through the um, the way that propaganda can just kind of get into each person's mind, the way information is micro-targeted, the way uh, the news media has been bought by corporate power and corporate greed um, and is controlling um, facts and information. And so I talk about how important it is spiritually that we as faith communities develop spiritual disciplines to ascertain the truth. We need to develop those muscles and those skills. And I think scripture gives us a lot of ideas about how to do that. Prayer is one, the ability to disconnect from the news media, um, encounter with those who are suffering, getting to know their reality is the constant theme and drumbeat of the Bible, that God is most present with those who are suffering and those who are being oppressed by the systems of the day. And so when we draw close to those who are being oppressed, we are drawing closer to God and to God's reality. And so that's how we get in touch with truth. Oh, very, very, very well said. And um, I'm thinking going back to Pontius Pilate, he also was being supported by the um, high priest of the, the the temple at the time. I mean, the, the Jewish priests. Uh, he was. And that's an important thing to understand because... What happened was when the Roman Empire took over the land, they would always co-opt the elites. So what's happening there is not so much a critique of Judaism itself. It's a critique of the way in which the empire has co-opted the religious authorities of the day. And I would say to religious leaders today, who among us is being co-opted? We need to look when we are working um, in politics and trying to get politicians to live out our values, if we are not countering the politicians that we originally um, endorsed or encouraged, if we are not challenging them on a daily basis and looking holistically at everything they're doing, then we are committing idolatry. We're being just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were in league with the Roman authorities. They had been co-opted. And, you know, I chaired President Obama's uh, third religious council. And we constantly challenged Obama. 
You know, we were a thorn in his side and he actually encouraged us to do that. Sometimes we had friction. Sometimes we thought we disagreed, but there was always respect and we would never have walked lockstep with everything he said. We challenged him on his immigration policies, on the um, pipeline that was being put through Native American uh, territory. Um, And it chills me to see today religious leaders who are refusing to critique this current president and seem to walk lockstep with everything he says. That makes him into a god, and that's idolatry. Exactly, and um, I want to go back to uh, one of the earlier chapters um, when you point out um, the story of the Good Samaritan. And something that I did not realize is that the Samaritans, they were an ethnic group, Mm -hmm. and they were not friendly with the Jews. So say something about why that story is so much more significant than just the surface of someone helping someone. Oh, I love your little doggy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. It's okay. Yeah, you know, we often just take that on its surface level. It's like, oh, we need to help people in need. But the turn in that story, the thing that, you know, Jesus told these parables so they would sit with us and percolate over a period of days. And you'd be like, oh, my gosh, was he saying this? The Samaritan, the outcast, the person who was considered unholy by those leaders of that day in the community that was hearing that story, the unholy one was the one who did the right thing. It wasn't the anointed leaders. And so it causes you to then ask, who are the people I'm looking down upon um, who I disdain? And maybe they're the ones who actually know something that I need to be listening to and need to be hearing. Maybe they are the heroes of the day. Exactly. So maybe we could end on, on something about going back to Revelation. Uh, and, and I was really struck by what you pointed out that that Jesus is coming coming forth with the lamb and the lion, both of those metaphors to him. He had a sword, but the sword was not held in his hand. It was coming out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to, to yeah. talk about that. And so the sword coming out of the mouth is the word. It's the word of God. And the word of God is to love neighbor and to live in this radical new way that rejects the way of the world, which is tyranny. It's whoever has the most power extorts and exploits other people. It it is the word of the living God, which is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Exactly. So there we go. Uh, Thank you. There's so much more. And I just thank you so much, Jennifer, for being with us today on New Dimensions. I really enjoyed it. We had fun. We did. We did. I think we covered a lot of wonderful points. And I want to remind our listeners that if you want to know more about the work of Jennifer, and you can go to her website, which is faithinpubliclife.org, faithinpubliclife.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3720. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.